Hi, welcome back to Podspell. My name is Shay, and today I'm here again with Emily Richman. We're going to continue our conversations about shame and intimacy, but also talk today about safe spaces and safe spaces in the arts and how that affects creativity. Here we go. You know, in Waiting for Guffman, mm-hmm. when they're um, when he's talking to the like pianist guy, and he's like, um, I, I just really, I worry. And he's like, why are you whispering? I'm right here. <laughs> well, now it's too loud. <laughs> That's every That's just what I think ever. of. <laughs> like from me to Mark <clears throat> Maron, it's like. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's off now. Well, now it's too loud. <laughs> um, so today we're going to talk a little bit more <clears throat> with each other. Uh, yeah. This is Emily Richmond, a comedian, mental health professional, and director, actor. Yeah, um, those are all true. All true Ordained minister, although I don't really advertise that one. I'm an internet minister. God, what don't you do? I don't look math, I mm. guess, and sports. That's not true. Um, I do yoga, and I guess that's kind of is that a sport? No, I don't think it is. I mean, why not? I don't do math. I don't do math or science things. Mm. Well, that's not true. Mental health is science. Yeah. But let me tell you, Brain people chemistry? refer to it as the soft sciences, and that makes oh. me so irritated. But anyways, I digress. No, I feel that because, like, as a, my, I, mean, I have a master's in fine art, and I've been told theater's not a fine art. What? You don't, you don't draw or do music, and I was like, yes, we do, bitch. We do all those things. Uh, theater people, fine as hell. <laughs> yeah, we're like Brazilian bodyguards. <laughs> like, we're gorgeous. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Um, so yeah, I do a lot of Yes. Um, what is a safe space? Oh, my God. <laughs> As a mental health professional, what is that? Oh, my God. What does that I, mean? Okay, that's a really good question. Like, when earlier, when you first texted me about safe, should theater be a safe space? Mm-hmm. Literally, I was thinking about, like, for actors, like, theater as a home, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a safe space for actors to explore. Mm-hmm. And that, I believe, like is one definition of a safe space. Yeah. But I think what you're talking about is safe spaces in terms of like content warnings and trigger warnings and a place where you can be safe from, um, well, like, you know, triggers and victimization and stuff. Uh, is that what you're talking I about? I think both. I mean, because okay. <laughs> I, especially going through graduate school um, where my mentor, um, a lot of our work, especially at the graduate level, was about um, working on our own um, individuality and our own specificity from like who we are and so we're creating work from a personal place and yeah. not necessarily like in a in a in a Strasbourg way where it's like we're dredging up like trauma from our childhood right. but we're putting ourselves into the situations mm-hmm. and to experience an authentic moment on stage and so teach and helping us to bridge ourselves and the character and finding the similarities and the mm-hmm. connection between the two so that way I can just experience on stage with my partner yeah and not have to um do the like actor 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 all right go character but we right can, we can right. bridge the two and then naturally go in and out rather than sure doing the, like, things, especially that I'll see sometimes of, like, I need to prepare. Like, it's like, well, how can you just, like, breathe into the character and go? Right. And really craft with that. And so something that we talked about in class a lot and and, and subsequently now in my in my own work as a teacher and a director is um, differentiating for people's safety and discomfort. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. I, mm-hmm. Which, which kind of got me on this because we talked about this at a bar. Yes, we did. <laughs> when we first met. Where yeah. I was very comfortable and safe. 
Yeah, we're how 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 appropriate that we're at a bar <clears throat> having a good time talking about safe spaces. And, <laughs> and trauma. I, so I agree. I, oh man, I I agree with you, and I have a lot to say about this. Were you done? Did I just interrupt you? You go. Okay. So I think it's both, like you were saying, right? I think for actors, for performers, for you know production staff. And that's important when you think of, you know, women and technical aspects of theater and that kind of stuff. And even just as performers in theater, it's important that actors be safe to explore these, like you're talking about, explore discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Explore concepts, explore ideas, language that um, maybe is uncomfortable at times, mm-hmm. right? Physical interactions. Um, and and so I think that the safe space of that is exactly what you're saying. They need to be safe to explore those things. Mm-hmm. The thing about the kind of content warnings and the safe space, quote unquote, for an audience is that one of the main purposes of theater in my thought process and my estimation is challenge, right? So holding the mirror up to society, right? Showing us who we are, not just who we want to think we are. Mm-hmm. Right, which is like last time we talked, we talked about casting, we talked about diverse casting. Like, if we're holding a mirror up, it needs to actually reflect our world, yeah. not the squeaky, I was going to say squeaky clean, squeaky white, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like specific body type, yeah. like very specific portion of society. It needs yeah. to reflect our entire world, mm-hmm. right? And that's really important. And part of that is all the really ugly stuff. Yeah. But... There's also this thing we were talking about before we started recording where I basically just had this moment where I was like, why do we need to keep raping women as plot devices? It's Mm -hmm. just like, it's really tiresome and upsetting. Yeah. And so what I mean by that is, yeah, we want to reflect the ugly stuff too, because if we're going to reflect the whole of our world, it includes a lot of ugly stuff and Mm -hmm. a lot of beauty and a lot of confusion and a lot of um, mixed moments of beauty and (laughs) confusion and, uh, and negativity. But we need to, there's this, I think there's this tendency sometimes to really latch on to specific ugly things yeah. that we feel create this dramatic catharsis, Yeah. but then to shy away from or just never delve into, there are these kind of things that it's like, oh, but, but we can't, we, that seems too uncomfortable, mm-hmm. right? And so I don't know what that looks like. I'm not specifying that right now but it made me think about when I was like can we just stop raping women as plot devices you know and I I realize there's gonna be some people listening to this podcast who that's gonna trigger and I'm I'm not intentionally trying to be triggering with that but my point being that it's like if we're using this as a plot device because we think it's shocking and it's gonna spur conversation maybe that's because it's something that happens to us so much Mm -hmm that we have a shocking response to it. There is no question as to whether a woman being assaulted on stage is going to be shocking. Of course, it's shocking. It's Mm -hmm. shocking, by the way, because women get assaulted constantly. And we have a sort of shared consciousness about what that experience is or what leads up to that or on a lower level what being harassed is, Mm -hmm. etc. We don't give content warnings for, generally, I don't think, (laughs) for, hey, this it's going to have some really uncomfortable moments on stage mm. where someone's being called out on their privilege mm-hmm. by somebody that they love and they're going to have a very difficult moment where they have to figure out how to take that in, see how they feel about it, 
admit to some of their really bad behavior and then try to move forward in a relationship, right? I'm not saying those things are of the same level of, like, trauma. They're Mm -hmm. not. But my point is that... As much people try and tell you. Right, right. They are not. But my point is that we're going to this huge, shocking, really traumatic, horrible thing that in reality Mm -hmm. happens all the time. We know it. Mm -hmm. We don't have to question it. We see it constantly on the news. You know, girls and women get assaulted all the time. We don't have these other conversations that, quite frankly, I want to see on stage. Yeah. We're not we're not content warning those ones. We're not. I mean, more now in more mm-hmm. modern playwrights, yes, but we're not seeing tons of productions that are holding that mirror up to the the uh, quite frankly the shit that is really really wrong and like the roots of a lot of this more traumatic stuff that's happening. Yeah. We're going straight to the trauma and going like, "Ooh, yeah, we can all feel how terrible this is together." I don't need to go sit in a theater to know how terrible that is. Yeah. Exactly. And when we and looking at the craftsmanship of that too of of what are we trying to communicate to especially artists that we're teaching of like, "All right, I mean, I see a lot of campuses right now doing some really beautiful work." But we're seeing a lot of productions like The Wolves and we're seeing productions like Good Kids and mm-hmm. seeing these productions that are dealing with assault on campuses, which is really important. I agree. But what I'm wondering is how how are how are we approaching that? Because I feel like the conversations, at least I was having in, in my classes and, in, and I that I have in my work is, all right, so we need to talk about and 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 maybe readjust or reapproach things when you feel like you're uns- when you feel unsafe when we're going towards a scene that is something maybe like that or something that is, has a little more violence or aggression or, or physical stuff that we have to deal with so where's the where's the line for your safety yeah and but then if you're uncomfortable i'm 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 interested in that happening I don't want you to always be uncomfortable, but life's pretty uncomfortable. I mean, this yeah. chair I'm sitting in is uncomfortable, which is be. not the same yeah. thing. But there's like it's like flirting's uncomfortable. Yes, sex can be uncomfortable. You know, like things yes. can make you feel queasy and feel intri- intricate feelings and sensations at one time. It's mm-hmm. like the world is stimulating, and that comes with a level of discomfort. Yes. And so, as an actor, how do you live inside of that? As a director, how do I live inside of that with my actors mm-hmm. and craft with that? Yeah. But if I'm doing things in a way that's not safe, where I'm like, all right, everyone, today we're going to do the assault scene. Mm-hmm. Here we go. And you're not crafting with a sense of discomfort and a craft of storytelling. You're simply kind of going through the motions of things. Then you're mm-hmm. not creating a safe environment. Yeah, agreed. Which which I, which I, especially with some of the, the students I was working with at, in, at my last school – they would immediately pull out of the discomfort. Oh, yeah. I'm, well, I'm uncomfortable right now. Okay, great. How do you craft with that? Because the scene's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're working on three sisters. It's like they're all pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. we're, that's what we need to craft with. So when I'm, so I'm really interested in, in the language breakdown because I feel like when we're, especially looking at productions right now where, some theaters are sort of pushing the envelope with content, mm-hmm. but then how much are you giving away before we even begin? Yeah, and you know what's interesting? I want to go back to something you just said because it really um, it checked a little box in my mind. Um, I recently saw a production, local production. Um, it was like a workshop production of mm-hmm. Tracers, and it was a, um, a I think a couple of college students at the college, but then mostly other like adults in the mm-hmm. community. And something that was really interesting is that something I, I notice a lot about 
I'm not going to say young actors because it doesn't necessarily mean young, but like newer actors, right, mm-hmm. who are pretty early in their training or experience. There, I think, is this tendency, uh, and I see it a lot, but I do a lot of community theater, so mm-hmm. admittedly I'm not working with a lot of professional actors. There's this thing, like if we're doing drama, right, and when or emotions get high or the discomfort you're mm-hmm. talking about, it'll go up and up and up and get to this point <laughs> where I can see it in performance mm-hmm. where they're like, they stop right before mm-hmm. that place, yeah. right? And I can see it. It's like it's hard to describe like mm-hmm. through a podcast, right? But like I think a lot of directors maybe will know what I'm talking about. Is like It's like you want them to go that one step further, right? Mm-hmm. And here's where I think this comes in is are they not going that step further because it's uncomfortable and they don't know what to do or they worry that it's going to be too much or it's not going to be the right choice? Mm-hmm. And the thing is that I can see when they stop. Mm-hmm. And I adjudicated that workshop, one of the nights of it, and there was like one or two actors that the notes I gave them were, I really appreciated that you completely went there, mm-hmm. right? Which I don't see a lot with early, like, mm-hmm. young actors because I do a lot of work with teens and stuff like that. But then also with just, like, actors who maybe haven't been doing it a while or even actors who have for a while but they've never really been mm-hmm. challenged they go right up to the edge of it yeah and so i'm wondering if that's an element because some actors i've worked with i do a lot of comedy though to be honest so i don't do a lot of really intense dramatic stuff which i'm hoping to change in the future um when they get to uncomfortable right they're like oh i'm uncomfortable right instead of and i think this is where directors come in but also actors have to be on board instead of saying okay, well, I don't want you to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Really, what we want to say is, I don't want you to be unsafe. Do you feel unsafe? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I trust you guys. I just, this feels uncomfortable. Okay. Yeah. What's uncomfortable? Let's let's stop for a minute. Mm. Let's have a conversation about what's going on yeah. and why. And I think, like, as a therapist, I see this almost through a therapy lens. I'll tell you right now, <laughs> I tell my clients this all the time, this is not going to feel good all of the time, all of the time. Mm. Growth sucks, man. It is so hard and it is really painful. But on the other side of that growth, incredible stuff happens. The incredible stuff can't happen unless you go through the murky stuff. You literally have to. There is no other bypass. You can pretend that you're bypassing, but what I see is that it's not actual growth right from a therapy perspective and I really do relate that to theater work too if that actor is like oh I'm uncomfortable pulling back I can see it as an observer as a as a consumer of theater even when I'm taking my director hat off and I'm like I'm just gonna go watch a play I can see it Mm -hmm. yeah I think actors who and then directors really it starts with directors to stop and go okay are you safe yes let's talk about the discomfort like you're saying let's what's what's uncomfortable what what do you think do you think the character's feeling this discomfort? Where, where's the character going with this? Mm-hmm. You know, where's where's your discomfort coming from? And do you think that applies to the characters in the scene? Yeah. Or not? And maybe that's why you're uncomfortable because you're going, I don't even know who this person is that I'm playing. That's a great opportunity. Yeah. And my and, and, and what I'm really fascinated about as a storyteller is when actors say, well, I'm feeling this, but talking about the scene when they replace, oh, well, he with, well, I. Right. And putting yourself in the empathetic experience of the play. <clears throat> and so when we talk about discomfort, going, well, I am very uncomfortable. You know, I have to go in and, you know, we're like, it's Uncle Vanya. It's like, 
I have to go in and talk to Astrov. It's like, I'd be uncomfortable if you go and talk to that dude. <laughs> right. You know, because there's so much tension going on. Mm-hmm. And, and I think even, you know, like, I, I, I think I say this in every podcast, but the Uta Hagen thing of, like, the audience can't go anywhere that you aren't. That's it's so like, true. If, if I can't go into the discomfort, how can the audience? Mm-hmm. Because I think we'll all pick up on, like, oh, I'm, I'm just uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I also think when we talk about safety, too, if I have crafted the play with an atmosphere of safety, Mm-hmm. and the discomfort is at its highest, chances are the audience will be incredibly uncomfortable, but will know that the actors are safe and yes. so they can, we can all Gosh. stay inside the story, yes. which is the goal. I would, I love it when an audience goes, wow, I was so uncomfortable, or I was so yeah. moved by this thing. Or, But you can't get to those places, mm-hmm. like you said, without going into those darker places. Absolutely. With comedy, too. I mean, I think... You know, even even in Ken Ludwig's work, who has had a great career, his work, there's a level of discomfort in it sure. that maximizes the humor. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you're dealing with these neurotic people going through this and there's all this discomfort, the humor just comes out even more. So I think that looking at it, too, is the same thing. Like, But when I'm dealing with the... You know, if I'm if I'm doing Titus Andronicus and I'm looking at those mm-hmm. scenes where, where Lavinia is being assaulted. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, how can I craft this with these actors and with this team of designers in a way where everyone feels safe enough to explore the discomfort and the suffering of the assault? Mm-hmm. And let it and let us really experience that and let us all work within that and through mm-hmm. that. But not in a way where, one, it's unsafe, so I'm traumatizing people. Right. Or I'm traumatizing my audience. Or I'm asking someone to craft with trauma. Because that yeah. is not... No. That's not, that's not the goal. And that's not something you should ever do. I feel like as, a, as an acting teacher, <clears throat> if I'm asking you to go somewhere and that un- discomfort does become unsafe because of the emotional things you haven't been able to process, mm-hmm. then we stop. Then we're not going to... I'm not going to push you there or challenge you to go yes. there because therapy is not the same thing as theater. No. <laughs> like I've, I have had no, incredibly therapeutic moments sure. and things have felt cathartic. And as a craftsman and, and, and as an observer, an audience member in the theater, all the time I feel moved and compelled and, and able to reflect back on things that have happened mm-hmm. to me. But if I'm watching something and it like opens up a wound – a shame wound or a, or a trauma wound or I'm crafting and I can I can't feel my 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 rope to get out then we're going somewhere that's unsafe which is a huge difference from discomfort because yes if you if like if if you and I have if I've been your client and you and I have worked on something and 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 really done the therapy to help me you know wash up some of these wounds and heal and then I go into a play, you know, maybe a year or two later, and there's a similar thing, but I'm able to craft with it and then let it go. Mm-hmm. Craft with it, get inside of it again, really explore that pain that this character hasn't been able to heal from. Yeah. I have the tools to get myself out. Mm-hmm. But if, like, the, it's like the Strasbourg thing I fucking hate. <laughs> if you're asking someone, re- relive this dark thing in your past, like, no. Mm-mm. You want to be able to tap on that and, and reflect back on it and maybe use some of that sensory things to, to, to craft with and texture your work. But if you're asking someone to live in their mom's death again mm. and to be there and that's how you have to work is from that, this total 
re reopening of something, it's like that's dangerous. That's how you get Daniel Day Lewis not being able to do theater anymore. Yeah, because he saw his fucking dad in Hamlet. Yes. And then he could not go on anymore. He hasn't done a play in like 20, 30 years. That's so sad. Because he's crafting in this dangerous place and he literally saw his dead dad mm-hmm. in the play. And it, tra- it traumatized him yeah. all over again. You know, it's interesting because I have all these different, as you introduced me, with all these different elements in my life. Um, my therapist uh, supervisor would call them um, the breadth of my expression. Mm-hmm. And they're all different means of expression, which I think is a great way to look at it. <laughs> but something that you said just made me think of stand-up. <clears throat> so I just did a show last night and a really good set, actually. Like, I'm kicking myself for not recording it. But anyways, I see this all the time with comedians. And then they, and they'll joke about it. But, like, there's a truth to it, seriously is they'll use stand-up as therapy or instead of therapy. Mm. And stand-up is not therapy. Can stand-up feel therapeutic? Absolutely. And do I think that there's a lot of difficult life stuff that we can talk about on stage that really provides an opportunity for audiences to feel not so alone? Mm. Totally. It's very much like theater in that way, right? Like you can hold the mirror up with your own experience. Yeah. And I actually have a couple of bits you just made me think of when you're talking about, like, kind of some of the dark stuff or with humor. Like, you're talking about, mm-hmm. like, even with comedy. Yeah. You know, I have a I have a whole bit about when my mom was dying. Um, obviously, that's not funny. Mm-hmm. My mom dying is not funny. I wish she was alive. W- what was funny was that she and my dad went and prepaid for all the funeral stuff and arranged all that, brought home <laughs> the paperwork, told me and my sister, everything's taken care of. You just have to decide on a day, you know, when it happens and and if you want to have coffee or whatever. And hands me this, like, menu brochure for this, the, you know, event place at the funeral home. And I'm, like, looking at it going, who eats a calzone at a funeral? <laughs> right? My mom dying is not funny. But, like, that was a funny moment that was born out of so much tension, right? Yeah. Like, the the dynamic you have when your mom's dying and she literally hands you a menu brochure for you to decide what to eat at her fucking funeral. Yeah. I mean, this is a practical thing that has to happen Mm -hmm. and it's upsetting. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't tell that story on stage for many years after my mom died. She's been gone six years now. And I finally found a way after a lot of therapy where I worked Mm -hmm. through a lot of grief and I still miss my mother. But let me tell you, everybody in an, in an audience has lost somebody. Mm -hmm. Somebody, maybe their mom didn't die, but they're like estranged from them. Mm. And so this idea of loss and finding humor Mm. in, you know, dark humor or humor in a situation or in a dramatic situation, like finding a connection. Mm. Of course, that joke came from my actual experience. And by the way, the punchline of that joke is I told my mom that I would get the calzones as long as my sister and I could walk around and ask people how their calzones were. And then when they said they were good, we would say, you know, it would make these even better if our mom wasn't dead. <laughs> That's so <sad>. That's fucked. <laughs> but I think it's funny. I think it works for a couple mm-hmm. reasons. One is that's practically accurate, right? Mm-hmm. A hundred percent of things in my life would be better if my mom wasn't dead. Yeah. Also, the reason I said it at that moment was because it just seemed like the most messed up thing you could say to somebody at a funeral, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, humor comedy is often just like mm-hmm. the opposite thing that you think would happen, of course, yeah. is what makes it funny. And so anyways, my point being that 
you know, I had to do a lot of my own processing before I could speak about that on stage, you know, without really kind of just re-injuring myself, mm-hmm. right? And so what I do now, like what you're talking about, I mean, it's a little different medium, stand-up versus, you know, theater. But I I tell that story from a perspective of a person who has realistically watched her mom die. Mm-hmm. And also been able to find the humor surrounding this really horrible situation. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks to what you're saying, which is, of course, we don't want people using theater as therapy. That's incredibly dangerous. And if I may say so, kind of selfish because mm-hmm. that's not what the audience is there for. They're yeah. not there to witness your therapy. Mm-hmm. The audience is there to experience a story being told. Yeah. And as an actor, I feel like it's not about me. And honestly, maybe that's why I like stand-up. It's a nice – it's one moment where it's about me. I'm mm-hmm. by myself. Yeah. Theater is a group sport. It's teams, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're there to tell a story. You're all there for storytelling. Yeah. Not to do therapy. Not to work out all your stuff with your co-actors you know, actors and cast members as props and mm-hmm. therapists guiding you along. And so in that way – I'm sure somebody's going to comment and say, like, of course you say that because you're a therapist and you want business. Like, I don't care what therapist you go to. It doesn't need to be me. (laughs) But theater is not therapy, like you said. I mean, I agree with that. And so I think you're right on where our work should be informed Mm -hmm. by our experiences but should not be a method for us to work out all our demons. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's – yeah, I'm, I'm definitely wrestling with that. As a director, too, because it is so personal for me as mm-hmm. a director, especially in my work the last couple of years where um, I feel like it's my job to love the play and to um, advocate for the play and to advocate for my connection to the play. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what gives me my access to the, to the script and personalize the, the moment. But to always keep the script in the forefront and the story and the characters in the forefront. Yeah. But to have my experience be the lens for what I create. Sure, yeah. And how my my like my collaborators can access me as well as the plays, how I connect to things. But mm-hmm. I'm also not going to use it as a way of like, oh, I need to do this play because I need to deal with this thing. Right. It's like, oh, I want to tell the story because I've experienced this. Mm-hmm. Or there's something about it that speaks to me and something that I have experienced. Right. And I think I have a way into that that can be useful as a Mm -hmm. storytelling tool and that way I can create a safe space because I'm on the other side of it not that I can heal you or therapize you because it's not my training right you know it's not well and it is my training but it's not what I'm doing as a director yeah that that's a different hat man Mm -hmm. my training informs that but that's not my job as a director yeah and and like you know I feel like there are skills involved we're like helping to build positive tension and ways to kind of dissolve conflict in a Mm -hmm. room that's not useful to the moment all these other things that happen for being a, a, a leader of a team but we need to be able to express and advocate for ourselves of going, we're going into something that I can't fully understand. Mm-hmm. I can't fully I can't fully experience without causing harm sure. or without being um, uh, unreplicable. Like I can't do this again. Mm-hmm. I won't be able to get to this place again. It's like when you you hear stories of of, of Marilyn Monroe's training or James Dean, how Strasbourg pushed them into going to these deep traumas mm-hmm. and going, okay, now hold on to that and work with that. And it's like, yeah, now they both died before they're 30. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a direct, you know, Strasbourg didn't kill them. <laughs> right. But the fact that they thought that that their acting training could be the way out. Right. And it's not it. It's yeah, kind it's of the not... other way around. 
Like I think like I, especially when I'm teaching things, like if, I, if there's a student that I feel like is not able to do the kind of work I'm asking of them, I never have qualms of going, hey, why don't you take this next semester? Or, or why don't we adjust the assignments for you? And I think maybe look into the resources here for therapy. Yeah. Maybe there's something that, that you know, you need to work on personally that is not my business. Right. And is not my 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 responsibility other than to support you and love you. Mm-hmm. But there is something that you can go find resources for that are not this. Sure. Yes. Oh, my God. I would... I wish more people just in general understood that. And, you know, because, like, back to stand-up just for a moment, you know, I have known comics who get on stage and they try to work all their stuff out Mm. on stage. And sometimes they might be kind of funny, but oftentimes it gets kind of uncomfortable. And then I've worked with comics who have clearly done their work. And I will say this of myself included. I think I'm a lot funnier since I did therapy because I can – craft something that takes from my experience but still is this nice joke that punches up you know I mean I I have the skill to do that now and I've worked with comics and then the same thing with actors I really wish more people in the arts well number one I just want to address here I'm speaking from a real place of privilege as a therapist and a white person and someone who has advanced education and health insurance and I realize it's so hard to find affordable, accessible mm-hmm. therapy, and especially for, like, people of color, finding, finding like, therapists of color or people who have training, who have an understanding of, of different, you know, cultural experiences. It's, like, really difficult. So I, I recognize that as I'm saying this, mm-hmm. that's happening. But those things aside, just the general idea of the fact that human beings experience trauma and it impacts them regardless of the field they're in. Mm-hmm. And then in the arts, I feel like there is kind of this exists, this idea that, well, all artists are sort of mentally ill and that mm-hmm. makes us good creators, right? Yeah. Good creatives. And I hear all the time about um, artists of various uh, disciplines being worried about taking mental health meds. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. everyone should get on drugs. Okay. But worrying because it's like yeah but what will that do to my creativity or Mm -hmm. what if I can't write after I start taking meds or what if I you know I mean we hear about all these artists you know I mean I mean I always gravitate to Van Gogh because I really love his work and he experienced a lot of really traumatic mental illness symptoms Mm -hmm. right at a time when we barely knew anything I mean we you know we were just like we barely knew anything about medication I mean Mm -hmm. some people some people probably still do, but at the time thought it was like demons or something, you know what yeah. I mean? And it was like, and then we look at his beautiful work and then we go, okay, well, you know, was he, was his painting beautiful because of the, his mm-hmm. connection to mental illness? Well, I don't know if it necessarily matters, mm-hmm. but like artists who are afraid to, to medication is usually the big one I hear about is like, I'm afraid to take medication, but also like, I think people worry, mm-hmm. okay, well, if I go to therapy, Am I not going to be interesting anymore? You yeah. know, and it's like when I just I see that the benefit of it right now, just like as human beings, but mm-hmm. then as artists too, as performing artists, the ability to perform at an even higher level mm-hmm. because you have a deeper understanding of yourself, your experiences, mm-hmm. and how they relate to your your whole self and the world, and that I think can only improve a person as like a performer, mm-hmm. as a director. I know that for myself, as I've processed the traumas that I've had, and then not even just trauma, but just 
doing therapy work about my own identity and how I want to be in the world and my experiences, I am definitely a better theater artist because of that. I I know it. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think a couple of years ago, I, I was like, I just feel unbalanced. Sure. I feel like I can't. Especially in my in my when I was training and like and I was active like in classes and in my my repertory of like going through the motions of things, I was like, I really can't do the work I want to do because I can't replicate what I just did because what I just did was was something outside of me. Sure. And so oh, yeah. looking at that and going, what do I need to do? And honestly, it was my my mentor Kelly, but also. Um, with her in tandem with our Stanislavski training. Okay. Stanislavski talks about balancing your mind, will and feeling right. Mm -hmm. Your mind, your heart and your, your essentially your gut and finding a sense of ease within that Mm -hmm. before you craft. Because if you're in a sense of ease and a sense of openness and vulnerability, you're accessible to connection and you're accessible to the present moment as it is, not as your altered state thinks it is. Right. And so you can go much farther into the work because you're able to just experience as it's happening mm-hmm. and but still have a lifeline out because your your body and your mind and your heart are open enough and at a sense of ease enough to where you can experience these heightened states of mm-hmm. things, but you're still in your body. Mm-hmm. You're still able to be there. And so I through therapy and now my own medication of like Oh, I can breathe. I can ground mm-hmm. myself and kind of stabilize myself and then craft with bounds of, of creativity and, and both dark and light things inside of me. But it took work to get to that, you mm-hmm. know, and it did go back to my acting training just in terms of like, well, this is what I want to do. Sure. Not Stanislavski solving my my chemical imbalance, <laughs> right? but going like a goal. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, I, I want to get to that place of ease, but I can't even look at my partner in the eyes because I'm like thinking of, I'm judging myself. Sure. And so how can I f- get my own shit together? Mm-hmm. How can I put the, the oxygen mask on myself? Right. Bef- yes. And then put one on my character <laughs> yeah. and craft, you know? Um, and yeah. the thing as a director too, of like, now I have Someone might say it's confidence, but more of it is that I just feel ease. Mm-hmm. I've done the work. I trust myself. I trust what yeah. I know and don't know. And I'm and I'm trust enough the fact that I can go, you know, Emily, in this scene today, here's what I'm feeling, but I don't know how to do it. Let's figure it out. Yeah. Where three years ago, I'd be like, well, let's do this mm-hmm. and not make it collaborative because I'm too nervous that you're going to think I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Because the self-judgment is mm-hmm. happening and then, you know, before any other yeah. judgment can so happen. So I find that ease and then I can work and I can be expose myself in an emotional way. Yeah. And then thinking of what you said about, like, artists and people thinking that potentially there needs to be darkness to craft or, or mm-hmm. trauma. It's like, then does that say that Picasso wouldn't have been a brilliant painter if he didn't sexually assault women? I know, I don't, yeah, I don't know, like, I don't think, like. It's like he wasn't mentally ill as far as we know, but he no. did sexually assault women and girls. And he was known to be, you know, a man of of certain youthful tastes. And so it's like, so are you equating the, like, negative, like, substance abuses also with, you know, people like Woody Allen who raised a girl to marry her and assault her. Is he brilliant because of that? Well, no, but I mean, I also would separate that from mental illness. Yeah, I mean, I would, that's what I'm sitting at too. But like, when when do we draw the line? Because especially if we're looking at people like 
um, like Kevin Spacey, for example, being like, but he's so he's such a brilliant actor. That doesn't excuse him being no. awful. Oh my god, of course not. Or even you know, going back to like people with mental illness, it's like it's not the same. But I feel like people treat them like they are. Oh, you know what I mean? It's like those are the same thing with safety and discomfort. It's not the same thing. If someone is mentally ill and they have something they need to work on or get or get help with, yeah. Again, like R. Kelly needs help too, but they're not the same thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I and I that's why I'm, I'm just like we have to. I feel like especially people like in my my age group where like I see all the time, even in my own classes. Like I'm, I taught a speech class recently. And I did an exercise where I had them stand across from someone and not talk and just look at each other for like two minutes. Okay. And someone was like, I'm not, I can't do this. That's not making me uncomfortable. You're making me uncomfortable. And I was like, all right, let's talk about that. I'm simply asking you to stand and look at someone and feel this idea of silence. Right. And it was a part of a bigger lecture, but it was just two minutes of silence and looking at somebody. Mm-hmm. There's a little space between you. are not touching or anything. It's not an acting class. We're not going to be touching each other. Right. But it's like what's causing this and why are you making such a huge deal of it? And then we broke it down the safety discomfort thing. She went, well, I'm not unsafe, but still you're making me uncomfortable. I don't want to do it. I go, great. Let's talk about that. And then let's work on you doing it Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I feel like it's going to aid you so much more. Eventually we got to a place where she agreed. We all went about it. And then at the end they went, Oh, okay. In terms of the bigger lecture, it made sense. Mm -hmm. What we were trying, I was trying to accomplish. And I was like, how often do you even get to do that? Because I because I feel like so often we go, uncomfortable, done. I'm just mm-hmm. not going to do that thing. And this is the same thing like I was talking about like in therapy. You know, I see this. Uh, I'll talk to people all the time when they find I'm a therapist. And they'll be like, oh, you know, I tried therapy and, and it didn't work for me. And I'll be like, oh, man, that's unfortunate. I mean, like, I'm sad to hear that. Um, yeah, it was fine. It was nice, you know, to go and talk to somebody once a week. But I don't really feel like I, I changed. And I never say this out loud because it's just, like, rude and whatever. But in my brain, I'm like, yeah, that's because either you had a bad therapist or it wasn't the right fit therapist for you mm-hmm. or you just refused to do the work. Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to be uncomfortable. Because let me tell you, I, I had a client say to me one time, and they were my client for a long time. We had very good rapport. Just mm. know that before I say this. And we're sitting there in session. It's getting kind of tense, tearful. And they said, do you know how often I think about running out of here screaming? And because I had good rapport with them, mm-hmm. I said, well, that makes two of us. And they started laughing, and then I laughed a little. And then the laugh kind of died down. It broke the tension, which was Mm -hmm. great, which was what was needed. And I said, finally, I said, well, but why do you keep coming then? And they were like, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And I said, okay, so let's do this, you know. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, that's the moment, right? That's the moment that a lot of people just go, this is, nope, never going back. This is too much, right? But the thing is, my job as a therapist, and then I would also, even though my job is not to do therapy as a director, but my job as a director Mm -hmm. is to challenge them and safely help them move through that. Mm -hmm. As a therapist, I'm not saying like, hey, have all your feelings, bye. I mean, my (laughs) job is to help them move through that, to Mm -hmm. be a support, to create safety in my office so that even if their body, their mind are going wild places, they're experiencing pain, they're feeling chaotic, my voice, my presence, my office Mm -hmm. is a safe, stable place where they can come in and move through that chaos and find meaning in it and figure out Mm -hmm. where they're at access their pain, move through that pain, find ways to 
move towards acceptance, right? All mm-hmm. of these things that we do, and this is the reason my client, although they spoke a very truthful thing, which I'm appreciative of, and they said, I think about running out of here screaming. It's just hard. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that same client recently sat down at my office and basically said a thing I never expected them to say for a long time. They had done so much work in two weeks that I was like astounded Mm -hmm. because they moved through all this pain. And so I'm saying that because I do relate that to being a director, not that I'm doing therapy for Mm -hmm. my actors, which is not my job and I do not want to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But as a director, my job is like you're saying to go, okay, so you're uncomfortable Rather than quitting, going right up to the line and then pulling back, mm-hmm. let's let's talk about the discomfort. Let's move through the discomfort. Let's safely unpack this mm-hmm. and then go forward. And I agree with what you're saying. It's like I think a lot of people in general, I don't want to make like an ageist thing mm-hmm. here. I think they just – avoid those experiences Mm -hmm. and so that's why i think discomfort and unsafe have sort of become convoluted Mm -hmm. yeah and in in rehearsals too the i experience less and less the things of like well i'm uncomfortable or can we stop i I, I don't feel comfortable doing this only because i feel like the more especially when you work with with people more often or, or more frequently a lot of the giving the actor agency or giving yourself agency as well to craft the scene is identifying it. Mm-hmm. I'm uncomfortable because I'm worried so-and-so doesn't yeah. find me attractive. Okay, let's talk about that. What? Why, where's that coming from in you mm-hmm. and in your character and in the scene? And is that something to craft with? I mean, even talking about things like Romeo and Juliet, it's like, you know, they, they this incredible, uncomfortable moment that they meet. It's yeah. huge. Mm-hmm. And that's also what makes it so passionate. Sure. Because they went up to the edge and then they crossed it to go, oh, to when a few scenes later, Juliet's talking about, if I die, cut him into stars so he can, you know, light up the, the night sky. Mm. It's like, come on. It's like that's un- and that's uncomfortable too. She's speaking about her own death and going, "If I go, I want him to sh- light the way." Yeah. Essentially, it's like, but well, we have to get to that. You know what? You just reminded me. So right now, I'm actually directing a show for our children's theater, and when I work with young um, actors, I started doing this. I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, a couple shows ago, and it seems really like. <laughs> lame or whatever. I don't know why. To me, it, at first time I did it, I was like, like they're going to believe you, whatever. I've started doing this thing where I will look them in the eye <laughs> rather than talk down to them like, oh, you're just a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, um, do you trust me to like keep you safe? You know, and you're not going to get hurt on stage. And they're like, well, yeah, usually, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thankful. And then I'll look at them and say, okay, I'm going to promise you that I will not make you look bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to make you look stupid on stage. I'm going to make you look great. Mm-hmm. And if it's a comedy, you know, I'll be like, yeah, you're going to be ridiculous within the, the show. No one, I promise you, you're not going to look stupid. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I would never ask you to do something that I wouldn't do. And and so when I'm asking you to do things, it's something that I know is going to be funny because I've been doing this a long time. Usually it's with the funny stuff that they get all weird, like, uh, you know, because adolescents are so weird about their bodies anyway. And mm-hmm. then it's like, oh, this physical comedy thing feels mm-hmm. weird. Um, and I'll tell you what, it's worked really well. 
mm-hmm. since I started doing that. And it's what you're saying, right, is going, like, creating. With adults, it's a little mm-hmm. different. But, like, with adolescents, I find, like, speaking to them on a direct level, mm-hmm. letting them know that you respect them as actors, you know, not just, like, eh, it's a bunch of kids running around, and yeah. then telling them to their face, like, promising them, I will not let you make – I will not let you look stupid. Yeah. I won't. Yeah. Everything we do is going to be part of our vision here. And I promise you, mm-hmm. I will never just – let you look dumb because they're really worried. Like there's a lot of embarrassment, right, about looking ridiculous and they yeah. want to be taken seriously as actors. And it's it's an incredible thing because I've gotten some really cool stuff out of actors when I'm mm. like, I promise I won't let you get hurt. And that means emotionally. Yeah, yeah. And that's huge. I mean, especially, yeah, I mean, I, I did my first show with kids last year um, and I just adored them. And we crafted this really cool, weird production of Two Brother Dozen together where we had puppets and we had parkour and we were doing like weird stuff (laughs) and it was just so fun and and just to but have those moments where one of my favorite actors now his name's Cal he was in the show and so I'll give Cal a shout out um he was talking to me he was kind of he's usually pretty spunky and doing his parkour and talking about the office and he's (laughs) just a little kid and um he also invents things he's very very eclectic Mm -hmm. so but he was talking to me before a rehearsal started, and I was like, hey, what's going on, bud? And he was like, I'm just really nervous. And I was like, why, what's going on? He's like, I've never done a play outside of school. Mm. And so I, I just, I want, I want to be, do a good job. And I was like, man, I think you're doing a great job. And I think the fact that every day you come back with new ideas proves that because you're so energetic and you're so ready to create mm-hmm. that we're gonna, they're going to love it. And if they don't, you've done a great job, and I love it. And maybe that's enough. <laughs> because, I, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let you go on doing something I didn't like. Yeah. And he was like, oh. And then we added a backflip. <laughs> like <he> like, <laughs> well, he did like a back roll into a belly flop, but it was really wonderful. <laughs> and just him going, you know, and it was something that we, I had added. I was like, in this moment, you know, he's like kind of accosting this, one of these girls' boyfriends, mm-hmm. and then she kind of shoves him. And I was like, when she shoves you, can you, like, roll on the ground and then, like, flop down? So she kind of shoves him very lightly, and then he does, like, a full back roll <laughs> and then belly flops <laughs> on the ground, and then he just lays there. <laughs> very strange, very out of the ordinary, but the fact that he and I had built that that rapport. Yeah, but I bet it was hilarious. It was so funny and very weird, but I also thought, oh, he loves The Office. He, like, takes parkour classes. <laughs> He's brilliant. This brilliant little comedian. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, in this moment, how can we heighten the uh, the uncomfortableness of this moment? Yeah. And then he did this really bizarre thing, and then he laid on the ground for just a second too long, and then just pops up and moves on like nothing. Like happened. nothing happened. <laughs> and for him and I to have to build the moments like that yeah. with a matter of trust and safety, mm-hmm. but incredible uncomfortability. Yeah. And going, oh, well, that's everything to me. And how it, it just takes those matters of, of pointing at the thing going, I'm nervous that I'm not good enough because I've never done it outside of school. Yeah. It's like, you're a little boy. Don't worry about that. Right. You're cute and wonderful and smart. Yes. And everyone in the production was cute and wonderful and smart. Of course. And it's like, man, nobody can. If, if that's what you bring on stage, then it will happen. Yes. But if you go on going, we did, where I worked really hard. I know everything I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm here to just experience and connect. Yeah. We're there. The audience is there. Yes. And if you're an adult going to a kid's show and you're judging little kids, fuck you. Like, <laughs> Just today I was checking on my set and some the set designer was like, well, I'm worried about this. I'm like, listen, if literally they come away from this whole show and be like, those hinges 
weren't painted or what? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know my point. If like if they're going, well, that costume is missing a button. I'm like, they missed it. Yeah, yeah. Please, like I'll tell actors, do not judge yourself by this one little thing. Nobody's gonna notice if they do. They missed it. That's not your target audience. Mm-hmm. You're doing so much other cool stuff on stage. Of course, yeah. we want our costumes to look good, but mm-hmm. like shit happens, man. Yeah, if you're a douche like me and you're going, no, <laughs> you were like supposed to be doing that. You were. Well, yeah, though that's the thing too is like when I'm then going back to my central. My I went to Central Washington University to respond to a show, and I I picked out some things out of the set, and um, because the play was so the production was so good. And things were so good in it that I had to, like, step out of my experience for a moment to go, all right, objectively, what can I comment on that's critical? (laughs) Right, right. Because I was just so invested. Like, I was so moved. And so, but then to have a response afterwards with some of the um, actors and designers and go, like, okay, so uh, some of this is harsh, but that's because it was so specific and so good. Right. So don't lose the first part. Right. Well, and you were asked to do that, right? I'm talking like Joe Schmo, audience Mm -hmm. member, who comes in and goes, well, that production was great, but you know what I noticed? Their boots didn't really match. It's like, are you insane? (laughs) You missed the whole show. And I kept telling telling this to the actors in the last musical I directed. And they'll be like, well, I'm like, after that dance number, no one's going to care about nothing. Mm -hmm. Do you understand? You guys look amazing. Yeah. No one cares if your vest has a snap or you know what I mean if you like yeah. forget to take your like modern watch off or whatever mm-hmm. I mean yeah like please try not to wear it but it's not gonna matter yeah but you know what you just reminded me of <laughs> or a little bit earlier is the other reason I think creating safe spaces for actors is important is that in my humble opinion which maybe some of your followers will disagree with and that's fine. They can just comment. I don't read comments anyways. It doesn't matter. But um, I'm allowed to disagree with me. What? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I think if you create a safe space for actors to explore and not just the, the vulnerability, the discomfort, mm-hmm. which I, I agree with that. Again, I do a lot of comedy, so I see that this happen. If you create an, a, a safe space for actors to explore, I think it's pretty guaranteed you're going to get a better production. Mm-hmm. And here's why. <laughs> I have worked as an actor with various types of directors. And the one that drives me crazy, probably more than anything, truly, is the one who's like, my way or the highway. Mm-hmm. I don't want any suggestions whatsoever. I have planned this out, every single line, all of the blocking, every little bit, very rigid, okay? And know that these directors exist. I've also worked with directors who didn't have any sort of plan at all. Mm. I didn't feel like I had much direction at all. Mm. And that in and of itself was also kind of frustrating, but less so than the first kind. And as an actor with a with a director that's so rigid, I'm like, okay, literally I'm an automaton then. Mm-hmm. Right? You have an exact specific thing that you want and you just want to fit us into your little puzzle. Mm-hmm. If you're that kind of director, okay, I don't want to act for you, but you, well, <laughs> you can be whatever you want. Um, I have found that the way I try to approach most productions is I have my vision. Mm-hmm. I try to communicate it clearly. And then I let the cast know, hey, you are intimate with this character. That's literally your job. That's what I expect of you. Mm-hmm. I'm not intimate with all of these characters. I see everything as a whole. Of course, I'm familiar with who the characters are, but I'm not doing character work. Mm-hmm. That's not my job as a director. Mm-hmm. That's your job as an actor, mm-hmm. okay? I can work on it with you, Yeah. 
But I'm not going to build your character and then be like, here it is, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to give you the roots and you grow, grow, grow. Because of that, you're going to be privy to stuff when you're working with one or two other actors on stage, these mm-hmm. little moments, you're in the space physically, you're going to be privy to stuff I can't possibly know because of yeah. my vantage point, both physically and like intellectually and emotionally. Mm-hmm. And what I find is if I create a safe space that's open to suggestions without being like, yeah, do whatever you want, mm-hmm. but saying like, if you come up with something, let me know, we'll, we'll try it. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it, maybe it won't. But we mm. won't know until we try it. And yeah. I'll tell you, number one, I feel like their buy-in is is huge because mm. they're like, you value me not just as a vessel that you can pour some character into and then get out exactly what you want, but as an artist. Mm-hmm. An artist. An artist. An <laughs> Yes, thank you. <laughs> as an artist, you value me as an artist, right? Because you – you trust that I'm going to do character work. Okay, number one, buy-in, huge. Investment, big. Number two, you're going to get a bunch of great ideas, mm. in my experience, if you trust your actors. I This last fall, I did a musical, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, which if any of your listeners are familiar with, is a really freaking weird musical. Um, the music is fun. Mm. The the actual like plot, it's based on this Dickens play, the last or the book, the last book he ever wrote. He never finished. It's like a whole weird thing. Anyways. I would say a good one third, probably, of all the like bits mm. that that happened on the stage, because it was a very funny show. We had a lot of really good feedback. People would come up to me and be like, oh man, I love that bit with blah blah blah. Mm. I, I mean, t- constantly I was like, oh, yeah, they came up with that. Mm-hmm. Because the actors would come to me and go, okay, what do you think about this? I, yeah. I was thinking of right here, you know, and, and there were plenty where I'd be like, I don't know that that fits mm-hmm. the vibe we're going with. Yeah, it would be funny, but I don't know that it fits what we're doing. They'd be like, okay, but I'd be like, try it. Let's see. Mm-hmm. More times than not, they'd be like, yeah, you're right. That didn't work. I, I thought it would work, but it didn't. And that's right. We tried it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we might as well try it. Yeah. And what I find is that the productions are better, number one, because there's more ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm just one brain and there are yeah. all these other brains. It's collaborative. Yes. And then number two, because they feel invested, even if you don't use their idea, they're like, yeah, but she wanted to hear it and we tried it and mm-hmm. then it didn't work, but whatever. They're not all gems. And then you go on with your day. Yeah. They're so much more invested. And so you get this cohesive unit. Mm-hmm. Of a cast who's like, we want this. We want this. And like I said at the beginning of this, I work a lot in community theater. Mm. Those people are all volunteers, man. Yeah. And if you <laughs> – I can, I've seen it before. You want to separate out a theater company. You don't value them. You don't give them appreciation mm. for what they're doing. And, and I've found as I treat cast this way, they really connect. And then mm. they're like – they're like, at all costs, man, the mm-hmm. show must go on. And they do that. And they produce incredible things. And it reminded me, because I was mm-hmm. thinking of the last show I did at the Children's Theater was a Nancy Drew girl detective show. Mm-hmm. And this, this script was awful. Like, not Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew is great. Mm-hmm. But, like, literally in this script, we'd be, like, halfway through a scene, and they would just talk about a character jumping on the bicycle. Not a bicycle, the bicycle. Like, that insinuates there was a bicycle. Like, literally, we hadn't heard about it until Mm -hmm. the middle of the scene. Mm -hmm. Just, like, insane, right? 
So I was just like, you know what? This has got a real weird Scooby-Doo vibe. So we're just going full Scooby-Doo on it. Mm -hmm. And I told the actors, and they would come up with the most ridiculous things. There's this fight scene at the end, and I'm not a fight choreographer. I want to be clear. And so I was like, okay, we're going to do a fight in Mm slow-mo so I can make it safe. Mm -hmm. And I can use the little choreography. I mean, I took combat, you know, in college. I have some basic stuff, but I'm not going to do anything involved. Mm. So I'm like, okay, we're going to do a chase scene and a little bit of a tiny little punch fall down fight in in slow-mo. And we're going to do a strobe light over it, (laughs) right? And I was like, okay, this is going to be great. Two nights before we opened, one of the actors goes, hey, Emily. I'm like, yeah, I have an idea. And I'm thinking, dude, we opened in two nights. What are you doing? He's like, what? Wouldn't it be funny if we played Eye of the Tiger over this fight scene? I'm like, what? What? One of the dads of one of the kids is up in the sound booth doing sound for us. And I go, hey, Kevin, can you find Eye of the Tiger? And he's like, okay. So he finds it. We play it over this fight scene. I was howling. I mean, everyone was just losing their minds laughing. It was the funniest thing. And it's this kid, this actor, who's in it going, Mm -hmm. you know what would be funny? Yeah. We tried it. It took two seconds. You download Eye of the Tiger. You play it. I mean, we were, it were like weeping, just laughing, just so ridiculous. Yeah. Eye of the Tiger and they're slow-mo chasing in the strobe light. I mean, it's just like dumb. Mm. And I think about that thing all the time because I think, man, if I had not created an environment where I said anything goes in terms of ideas, mm. I get to pick what works. Mm-hmm. He never would have felt like. I should say that to Emily right now. Yeah. <laughs> I should tell her, what about Eye of the Tiger? Yeah, and that is, I mean, I just, I, I love, and that's the thing that makes me sad about being a director is that you don't often get to sit and talk to other directors. Yeah, that's true. Because until, unless I'm in a show or I'm auditing something or I maybe I'm doing some dramaturgy work, which I don't really do very often, I don't get to be in the room with other directors. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've, I've, gotten to, I've gotten to witness brilliant directors like Sarna Lapine or Michael Wilson. Like I've gotten to see some some legends and their work is so collaborative and so beautiful and so connected. And it's exactly what you're talking about. We're like, we're here to create this together. Yeah. But I feel like because a lot, especially newer directors or people that are being taught that there is a certain way to direct a play, mm. they miss that. They miss the seeing the people that are at the top of their game mm-hmm. are doing just that. They're collaborating. Why, thank you. But it's the, <laughs> No, it is. I mean, like, watching Michael Wilson create with these incredible actors, you know, like like Rachel Spencer Hewitt, like these mm-hmm. really be- just beautiful craftspeople, and being like, let's, let's work through this moment. And they're collaborating on it and mm-hmm. creating really profound things it takes a second like you said yeah it didn't take long for us to test it out like i like and so just and and the whole point of that is like when when especially when directors are teaching directing often i have witnessed people being like well here's how to do it and what they mean is here's how i do it right which means here's how i've done it the few times it has worked that i'm going to tell you mm-hmm. and a lot of the times those directors that are being taught that go, okay, so then I need to come up with all these things and I'm the director, so I have to make the decisions and I have to make the choices. When in reality, it's kind of just like when you're leading a huge 
when you're so you're leading a huge team, and so what you're doing is going that works, that works. This was a great idea, but doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. You're just sifting through things. I mean, Bill Roush talks about that at OSF of being a director, being at the center of everything, and being yeah. able to absorb all these incredible ideas and, and generate your own, mm-hmm. but being able to decipher them and put them in, and distill, distill them, them into yes. the play, and then you create something gorgeous. And fun, or like you said, like just weird. I mean, like <laughs> when I did Cheap Brother Dozen, it was it's a terrible script too. It's sure. bad, but it was a great production, and all of the people in it were passionate about it. Yeah, and it was great, and I and I was so pleased. You know, I even like I came back to see it on closing. I, I made it, I made my way back to the theater. You know, and I did not live close to there at all. I'd left, mm-hmm. you know, when my contract was up and just to go see them again because I was just like, wow, this is so fun. When I came back, the show was way better than when I left. They had, this, it had gelled. Like, yeah. they really, yeah. And it wasn't that they necessarily changed anything. Right. It was just they were keeping the stakes high mm-hmm. because the stakes were high for them. Yeah. And the audience can go there with them. Mm-hmm. And it all comes back to just the sincerity of experience. You know what I mean? And yeah. so the last thing I want to talk about before we, we wrap up is be, going back to your stand-up. The most uncomfortable piece of media, and I, like, look for it. <laughs> I believe you. Like, my favorite show right now is Pen15 on Hulu. Oh, my God. Ooh. It is a dream. Dream come true. It's so uncomfortable, man. It's good. I tried watching it. I don't think it was in the right place for it, but I'm going to revisit it later. It's, and the thing that it's crazy. It, like, and, brought up all that stuff. Yeah. Like, you can't see me right now while you're listening, but I'm, like, pretend raking my fingers across my, <laughs> like, chest because it's so uncomfortable. So, But then there's, like, profound moments in it because they take you there. But anyways, I think yes. that shows it's my favorite thing right now. Um, you know, but the, the most uncomfortable piece of media last year, I think, was um, Nanette. Oh, it's Hannah Nanette. Gadsby's stand-up yes. and how subversive it was and how Ooh. how she took something mm-hmm. that we all think we know mm-hmm. and totally owned it yeah. and made it into something, for me at least, was deeply moving and funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of that stuff in there too was like she kind of started it in sort of a, I guess, a traditional stand-up set. Yeah, oh yeah, then totally. Then she took the most cr- wonderful, I don't want to say courageous, she took this really sharp bold turn yes yes and put all of us who have experienced it into a pure state of discomfort Mm -hmm. i never felt unsafe and i didn't feel unsafe for her no i felt like she was very safe she was in control which which felt good for me to watch as a Mm. female comic (laughs) but just and then for her to be like this is my truth and her Mm -hmm. to also admit like i've had to work to get to this yeah but here's my truth here's what i've had to work on and I'm happy she she did all that before she shared that because it, if if it was more unsafe or more I guess chaotic or, or less um, thoughtful how she did because she was you yeah. know you could see she's experiencing real pain up there sure but she's worked on it and gotten herself there to when when well when I experience it I can just be uncomfortable with her and be in pain with her and mm-hmm. feel laughter with her. And then be able to leave and discuss it mm-hmm. and feel it and, and do all the things I need to do rather than going, oh, my God, I felt so bad for her. Yeah. Yes. Because I didn't feel bad for her. I felt <laughs> empowered by her. So one of the things that I connected with, I'm not a queer person. I mean, I don't identify as queer, mm-hmm. I guess I would say. Um <laughs> So I can't relate specifically to her experience as um, a queer person or as a lesbian or as an Australian either as an American. But, you know, she speaks one of the things that just 
stuck out to me that really stuck in my mind that I'm pulling up as you're saying this is she talks about being steeped in shame mm -hmm. like a tea bag right mm -hmm. when you grow up steeped in shame she talked about that steeped in shame over being gay I can't identify with that but <clears throat> as a woman with a fat body that struck me so hard because I also am steeped in shame about my I'm about my body. I still have some, but it's very minimal now because I've done this work. And the reason I bring this up is to say, number one, that discomfort directly touched me. And I felt, even though she was talking about a completely different topic, I felt seen, I felt heard, I felt safe with her, and I felt connected to her in that moment because I've recognized that experience, right? As uncomfortable as it was, as that moment was, I, I understand that experience of the shame of being literally steeped in it, raised in it. You know, she talked about how when you've been steeped in shame, self-deprecation is not humor, right? Or humility. It's, it's humiliation. humiliation. Yes, thank you. That's what she said. And I mean, that really spoke to me, right? Uh, and so this is interesting because I hadn't recognized this before. <laughs> But then after, and then now you're talking about this, I'm connecting it. So I do talk a lot on stage about my own experience of being in a fat body. Mm -hmm. And a long time ago, I made the decision that I wasn't interested in perpetuating stereotypes like she's talking about, self-deprecation, mm -hmm. being humiliation. I wasn't, ex I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to do what we call punching up, right? Which is your punchline is not already victimized people. <laughs> it's your punchline are the victimizers, right? Or the, the culture or whatever. And it's so interesting what you're saying about how she brought all of those, those of us who've experienced that um, to, to light, I think is kind of what you were saying, but highlighting this really awful thing that we know about, but not all of us, right? Like the idea of that mirror, but specifically the mirror on, this really, you know, <clears throat> uncomfortable thing that we don't want to talk about, you know. Uh, it's so interesting because I have several bits about having a fat body. And one of them, I get like this weird gasp that happens in the middle of it from an audience <laughs> of generally thin body people. Let me tell you, if I tell this joke to fat people, they don't gasp here. And I'll tell you why not because they recognize it, right? Like I wasn't gasping watching Nanette because I understood that experience. Yeah. Even though her experience as a gay woman is not my same experience, I understood shame. I have a whole bit about how, true story, I had to have surgery, I go get an MRI, the surgeon puts the MRI up there and says, do you see this inside oval? It's all your organs and muscles and bones. This outside oval is just fat. Look at that skinny woman in there dying to get out. <sighs> And she said that to me. That's I didn't write that part <laughs> of the joke. Um, and, like, that is a thing that medical professionals will say. Now, mind you, my surgery was nothing to do with my weight. I had a very large ovarian cyst that could have potentially been cancerous, which is why I had to go to a special surgeon. And that was, like, taken as a teachable moment, okay, about my weight. <laughs> so I tell this joke to large groups of various thin-bodied people. And half of them will laugh. And then when I stand there for a moment in silence, 
they will gasp and go, oh, because right then in that moment, they understand what it means to have that shame put on you by this medical professional. And then I get to the punchline, which is, I told her, I know she's in there, I ate her, she's digesting, just leave it. (laughs) Which is where the stand-up comes in, right? But my point being that exactly what you were saying about Hannah Gadsby during Nanette is that she had done this work. She could then speak from this position of having done the work and then now turn that mirror, right, and present it and highlight this thing. But the idea then is to elicit the discomfort in the listener, right, in the audience, because she has worked through her discomfort prior to standing in front of that microphone. And that's the thing is that, like, I preface all those jokes by saying, I'm okay with having a fat body. I've had it my entire life. It's the rest of the world that seems very uncomfortable with it. And then I tell these stories. I've got a couple of different stories I tell about it, including that one about the surgeon. And I relate to what Hannah Gadsby was doing. Like, you're talking about the most uncomfortable piece of media, right, was this stand-up special because... I'm not Hannah Gadsby. She's an incredible artist. Um which like not trying to brag, but I got tickets to see her this summer. So I'm super pumped about that. But um, she's an incredible artist. I'm not saying I'm exactly like Hannah Gadsby, but I recognize the value because I'll be up on stage. And as I continue to tell these stories about my own experience, story about my, you know, dead mom or whatever. I mean, the first time I tried to tell that joke, this woman literally in the front row at this club goes, oh no, no. And I was like shocked. I'm like, excuse me. Finally, I just looked at her and go, it's not your dead mom. It's my dead mom. I get to talk about her if I want. Right, which ended up being hilarious. But that was it, I wasn't even trying to be funny. I was just like, how dare you tell me I don't get to talk about my own experience? Yeah. Like, I have the microphone, right? Yeah. And I think the more that artists take this opportunity, I'm really excited to see what happens. Um, like John Leguizamo's new special... Yes, thank you. I was trying to find the name. I haven't seen it yet, but everyone tells me how great it is. Chris Gethard's got a special called Career Suicide. If you look at this special, please be aware that if you have concerns about suicidal ideation or talk about suicide, it is not for you. He's very open and, and honest and raw about his experience with that. But if you can tolerate that, it's an incredible special. And I see this movement, right, where it's like, hey, part of comedy which I believe in my heart which is the same thing about theater part of our mission in entertainment quote unquote is is with for lack of a better word is social commentary right and I don't mean that like here's my opinion about racism so I'm writing this stand up set but like we should be connecting human beings and the way we do that is by saying you're not alone you're not alone hey if this doesn't resonate with you you might be the bully on the other side so pay attention to this shit and I think we're seeing a lot more of it in stand up which is just really raw people that are doing their work like Hannah Gadsby like Chris Gethard you know, John Leguizamo, like, yeah. clearly the dude has had how much racism in his life. Yeah. And he's now going like, okay, let me teach you about Latin history, you morons. Yeah. I'm not offended by that. I need to learn about it. Yeah, and I think of that too with, like, Maria Bamford. I don't know if you oh, watch. Like, she's, since I was in high school, I've, I've loved her. But, like, her TV Love show. Her. Oh, like, my Dynamite. God. Yes. And her whole thing is, like, I've done the work, so now let's go back and let's put me, let's put us back into what was happening to me. Yes. And having going from Technicolor to, to Monotone. Yes, and when she's so in the, well-crafted. The 
and then going in and out of the fourth wall and just like and her and and, and I've had people I've been like recommending it like oh Lady Dynamite such a great show and some people going it's just so messy and it's yeah, like that that's the point that's her experience <laughs> Her experience of mental illness was very messy and and disconcerting and chaotic and sometimes hilarious and sometimes really upsetting and painful. And I love that show so much. And I have also recommended to people who just go, I don't know, it's just too weird. It's like when you break it down to what she's trying to do, it's like, oh, like even the her, one of her more recent specials where she starts in her, her parents' bedroom. Oh, God. And then it slowly <laughs> goes through all these different venues, places like on the sidewalk. Yes. You know, all of a sudden being in a theater at the very, very end, but doing the same set. Uh-huh. It's just like her trying to tell her story of, yes. of, of someone who also like it's borderline agoraphobic. Yes. And if you really break down like what she's talking about, you're going, how fucking brilliant to start small, doing stand-up for your dogs and your parents, yes. to then doing it in a big theater. Maria Bamford is, when people ask about comedian, like, let me tell you what people at. So the number one thing when they find a male comic, they go, oh, say something funny, which mm. is, please, for the love of God, don't ever say that to a comedian. <laughs> Just please don't. You know what would be a cool question if they go, what's your favorite joke to tell? Mm-hmm. Oh, good question. Let me think about that. Mm. That's a no, that for me. That's an okay question. Like, please don't be like, say something funny. That's like super hack, and and we hate that. But then they'll go, who? What comedians do you like? And I'll name all of these comedians, and like no one's heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marie Bamford is in my list. I hope if Marie Bamford, if you ever listen to this, I'm a huge fan of yours. Yeah, also, Tig Notaro. Oh, Tig Notaro. Do you like Kathleen Madigan? She's another comic. I do. I like her a lot. She's funny. Um, I used so, to tell her jokes in, in drama class in high school. <laughs> when I didn't have any material, I would just do <laughs> Kathleen Madigan jokes. <laughs> and it always worked because who would expect a 14-year-old gay boy <laughs> to do Kathleen Madigan jokes in his drama right? class? Oh, my God, I know. But then I got taught because I did a – I wrote – and I mentioned her in, like, a drama paper. Oh. And my teacher looked her up and was like, oh, no. you did those <laughs> jokes in class. Man, like, you oh, told God. on yourself, dude. I know, but I thought she was so funny. And I couldn't do the voices like Maria Bamford until I got older. <laughs> that is it. Let me tell you, this is exactly – so Maria Bamford is such a brilliant – oh, she's so good at voices. And I always feel like all of my voices sound the same. And mm-hmm. so I get real down on myself because I'm like, I'll never be as good as Maria Bamford, <laughs> you know, about, like, voices. But I, but I will say, like, I think – so my point of this, right, is I think – this idea of I'm not necessarily sitting down just writing a bunch of jokes, but like I want to talk about things that are relevant and a lot of comics talking about their own experience, right? I mean, Hari Kondabalu, I don't know if you're like, um, I hope I'm saying his last name right. I think that's how you say it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he is incredible. He's, um, I believe he's an Indian comic. Mm. Um, and he, I mean, he's absolutely great. And he, t- he really talks a lot about like racism mm. and like, you know, like how that impacts him. And I feel the same way about Kumail Nanjiani, mm. who's on Silicon Valley. Um, but I do like his stand-up. And um, uh, Aparna Nancherla, let me tell you, if your listeners like stand-up and you like Twitter, please follow Aparna Nancherla, who, again, if you hear this, I hope I'm saying your name right. I've literally only seen it written. I don't know that I've ever <laughs> heard your name said. She's is so she is freaking killing it on Twitter. She's so <laughs> damn funny. So damn funny, right? Also not like a white dude. Mm. So that's kind of nice to like see the perspective, but um just I love 
I just love the stand-up that's like, here's some truth. And then the punchline is how messed up that the world mm. is like. <laughs> you know what I mean? That kind of thing. I don't know. No, I love that. Anticlimactic, sorry. No, it's all is so wonderful. And I love just 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 in in the last two episodes going from from shame to fat bodies <laughs> to Maria Bamford. Your your editor's gonna be like, This is literally a Mary Poppins bag of an episode. How the hell do I edit this? <laughs> Like, it. huge lamps just keep coming out of this in a weird episode. <laughs> no, it's great. Thank you so much. Thank you for um, having me again. Yeah, of course. I love it. Um, so, thank you for listening to Podspell. Um, we are looking for sponsors because everyone likes that. Um, also, thank you to Wolf and Thunder Productions who produces us out of Portland. Um, please share, like, comment, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. Um, and let's continue the conversation in the comments. Uh, we'll see you on the other side. Um, create and create for the good of creating. See you next time. I just want to sing that thing from, <laughs> sorry, you have to edit this out. The thing from, um, Avenue Q where he's like, give us your money. Mm-hmm. Like we need to talk I about I was in that sponsors. show and I had to go out into the audience with a little bucket and ask for money. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> oh, I love that. Give That's us good. your money. You have been listening to a podcast produced by Wolf and Thunder Productions. Visit our website at wolfandthunder.com and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash wolfandthunder.